Part 15 Chapters 7 and 8 of Section 2 of Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is done by Ralph Volpe. Chapter 7 Connection of Civil and Political Associations There is only one country on the face of the earth where citizens enjoy unlimited freedom of association for political purposes. This same country is the only one in the world where the continual exercise of the right of association has been introduced into civil life, and where all the advantages which civilization can confer are procured by means of it. In all the countries where political associations are prohibited, civil associations are rare. It is hardly probable that this is the result of accident, but the inference should rather be that there is a natural, and perhaps necessary, connection between these two kinds of associations. Certain men happen to have a common interest in some concern. Either a commercial undertaking is to be managed, or some speculation in manufacture to be tried. They meet, they combine, and thus by degrees they become familiar with the principle of association. The greater is the multiplicity of small affairs, the more do men, even without knowing it, acquire the facility in prosecuting great undertakings in common. Civil associations, therefore, facilitate political association, but, on the other hand, political association singularly strengthens and improves associations for civil purposes. In civil life every man may, strictly speaking, fancy that he can provide for his own wants. In politics he can fancy no such thing. When a people, then, have any knowledge of public life, the notion of association, and the wish to coalesce, present themselves every day to the minds of the whole community. Whatever natural repugnance may restrain men from acting in concert, they will always be ready to combine for the sake of a party. Thus, political life makes the love and practice of association more general. It imparts a desire of union, and it teaches the means of combination to numbers of men who would have always lived apart. Politics not only gives birth to numerous associations, but to associations of great extent. In civil life it seldom happens that any one interest draws a very large number of men to act in concert. Much skill is required to bring such an interest into existence. 
but in politics opportunities present themselves every day. Now, it is solely in great associations that the general value of the principle of association is displayed. Citizens who are individually powerless do not very clearly anticipate the strength which they may acquire by uniting together. It must be shown to them in order to be understood. Hence, it is often easier to collect a multitude for a public purpose than a few persons. A thousand citizens do not see what interest they have in combining together. Ten thousand will be perfectly aware of it. In politics, men combine for great undertakings and the use they make of the principle of association in important affairs practically teaches them that it is in their interest to help each other in those of less moment. A political association draws a number of individuals at the same time out of their own circle, however they may be naturally kept asunder by age, mind, and fortune. It places them nearer together and brings them into contact. Once met, they can always meet again. Men can embark in few civil partnerships without risking a portion of their possessions. This is the case with all manufacturing and trading companies. When men are as yet but little versed in the art of association and are unacquainted with its principal rules, they are afraid, when they first combine in this manner, of buying their experience dear. They therefore prefer depriving themselves of a powerful instrument of success to running the risk which attends the use of it. They are, however, less reluctant to join political associations, which appear to them to be without danger, because they adventure no money in them. But they cannot belong to these associations for any length of time without finding out how order is maintained amongst a large number of men, and by what contrivance they are made to advance harmoniously and methodically to the same object. Thus they learn to surrender their own will to that of all the rest, and to make their own exertions subordinate to the common impulse, things which it is not less necessary to know in civil than in political associations. Political associations may therefore be considered as large free schools, where all the members of the community go to learn the general theory of association. But even if political association did not contribute directly to the progress of civil association, to destroy the former would be to impair the latter. When citizens can only meet in public for certain purposes, they regard such meetings as strange proceedings of rare occurrence and they rarely think at all about it. When they are allowed to meet freely for all purposes, they ultimately look upon public association as the universal, or in a manner, the sole means which men can employ to accomplish the different purposes they may have in view. Every new want instantly revives the notion. The art of association then becomes, as I have said before, the mother of action, studied and applied by all. When some kinds of associations are prohibited and others allowed, 
it is difficult to distinguish the former from the latter beforehand in this state of doubt men abstain from them altogether and a sort of public opinion passes current which tends to cause any association whatever to be regarded as a bold and almost illicit enterprise footnote a footnote a this is more especially true when the executive government has a discretionary power of allowing or prohibiting associations when certain associations are simply prohibited by law and the courts of justice have to punish infringements of that law the evil is far less considerable then every citizen knows beforehand pretty nearly what he has to expect he judges himself before he is judged by the law and abstaining from prohibited associations he embarks in those which are legally sanctioned it is by these restrictions that all free nations have always admitted the right of association might be limited but if the legislature should invest a man with a power of ascertaining beforehand which associations are dangerous and which are useful and should authorize him to destroy all associations in the bud or allow them to be formed as nobody would be able to foresee in what cases association might be established and in what cases they would be put down the spirit of association would be entirely paralyzed the former of these laws would only assail certain associations the latter would apply to society itself and inflict an injury upon it i can conceive that a regular government may have recourse to the former but i do not concede that any government has the right of enacting the latter end of footnote returning to text it is therefore chimerical to suppose that the spirit of association when it is repressed on some one point will nevertheless display the same vigor on all others and that if men be allowed to prosecute certain undertakings in common that is quite enough for them to eagerly set about them when the members of a community are allowed and accustomed to combine for all purposes they will combine as readily for the lesser as for the more important one but if they are only allowed to combine for small affairs they will neither incline nor be able to effect it it is in vain that you will leave them entirely free to prosecute their businesses on joint stock account they will hardly care to avail themselves of the rights you have granted them and after having exhausted your strength in vain efforts to put down prohibited associations you will be surprised that you cannot persuade men to form the associations you encourage I do not say that there can be no civil associations in a country where political association is prohibited, for men can never live in society without embarking in some common undertakings. But I maintain that in such a country civil associations will always be few in number, feebly planned, unskillfully managed, that they will never form any vast designs, or that they will fail in the execution of them this naturally leads me to think that freedom of association in political matters 
is not so dangerous to the public tranquillity as it is supposed, and that possibly, after having agitated for society for some time, it may strengthen the state in the end. In democratic countries, political associations are, so to speak, the only powerful persons who aspire to rule the state. Accordingly, the governments of our time look upon associations of this kind just as sovereigns in the Middle Ages regarded the great vassals of the crown. They entertain a sort of instinctive abhorrence of them, and they combat them on all occasions. They bear, on the contrary, a natural good will to civil associations, because they readily discover that, instead of directing the minds of the community to public affairs, these institutions serve to divert them from such reflections, and that, by engaging them more and more in the pursuits of objects which cannot be attained without public tranquillity, they deter them from revolution. But these governments do not attend to the fact that political associations tend amazingly to multiply and facilitate those of a civil character, and that by avoiding a dangerous evil they deprive themselves of an efficacious remedy. When you see the Americans freely and constantly forming associations for the purpose of promoting some political principle, of raising one man to the head of affairs, or of wresting power from another, you have some difficulty in understanding that men so independent do not constantly fall into the abuse of freedom. If, on the other hand, you survey the infinite number of trading companies which are in operation in the United States, and perceive that the Americans are on every side unceasingly engaged in the execution of important and difficult plans, which the slightest revolution would throw into confusion, you will readily comprehend why a people so well employed are by no means tempted to perturb the state, nor destroy the public tranquillity by which they all profit. Is it enough to observe these things separately, or should we not discover the hidden tie which connects them? In their political associations, the Americans of all conditions, minds, and ages, daily acquire a general taste for association and grow accustomed to the use of it. They meet together in large numbers, they converse, they listen to each other, and they are mutually stimulated to all sorts of undertakings. They afterwards transfer to civil life the notions they have thus acquired, and make them subservient to a thousand purposes. Thus, it is by the enjoyment of a dangerous freedom that the Americans learn the art of rendering the dangers of freedom less formidable. If a certain moment in the existence of a nation be selected, it is easy to prove that political associations perturb the state and paralyze productive industry. But take the whole life of a people, and it may perhaps be easy to demonstrate that the freedom of association in political matters is favorable to the prosperity and even to the tranquility of the community. I said in the former part of this work, quote, The unrestrained liberty of political association cannot be entirely assimilated to the liberty of the press. The one is at the same time less necessary and more dangerous than the other. A nation may confine it within certain limits without ceasing to be mistress of itself, 
and it may sometimes be obliged to do so in order to maintain its own authority. Unquote. And further on I added, quote, It cannot be denied that the unrestrained liberty of association for political purposes is the last degree of liberty which a people is fit for. If it does not throw them into anarchy, it perpetually brings them, as it were, to the verge of it. Unquote. Thus, I do not think that a nation is always at liberty to invest its citizens with an absolute right of association for political purposes, and I doubt whether, in any country or in any age, it be wise to set no limits to the freedom of association. A certain nation, it is said, could not maintain tranquility in the community, cause the laws to be respected, or establish a lasting government, if the right of association were not confined within narrow limits. These blessings are doubtless invaluable, and I can imagine that, to acquire or preserve them, a nation may impose upon itself severe temporary restrictions. But still, it is well that the nation should know at what price these blessings are purchased. I can understand that it may be advisable to cut off a man's arm in order to save his life but it would be ridiculous to assert that he will be as dexterous as he was before he lost it. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 The Americans Combat Individualism by the Principle of Interest Rightly Understood When the world was managed by a few rich and powerful individuals, these persons loved to entertain a lofty idea of the duties of man. They were fond of professing that it is praiseworthy to forget one's self, and that good should be done without hope of reward, as it is by the deity himself. Such were the standard opinions of the time in morals. I doubt whether men were more virtuous in aristocratic ages than in others but they were incessantly talking of the beauties of virtue, and its utility was only studied in secret. But since the imagination takes less lofty flights, and every man's thoughts are centered in himself, moralists are alarmed by this idea of self-sacrifice, and they no longer venture to present it to the human mind. They therefore content themselves with inquiring whether the personal advantage of each member of the community does not consist in working for the good of all, and when they have hit upon some point on which private interest and public interest meet and amalgamate, they are eager to bring it into notice. Observations of this kind are gradually multiplied. What was only a single remark becomes a general principle, and it is held as a truth that each man serves himself in serving his fellow creatures, and that his private interest is to do good. I have already shown, in several parts of this work, by what means the inhabitants of the United States almost always manage to combine their own advantage with that of their fellow citizens. My present purpose is to point out the general rule which enables them to do so. In the United States, hardly anybody talks of the beauty of virtue, but they maintain that virtue is useful, and they prove it every day. 
the american moralists do not profess that men ought to sacrifice themselves for their fellow creatures because it is noble to make such sacrifices but they boldly aver that such sacrifices are as necessary to him who imposes them upon himself as to him for whose sake they are made they have found out that in their country and their age man is brought home to himself by an irresistible force and losing all hope of stopping that force they turn all their thoughts to the direction of it they therefore do not deny that every man may follow his own interest but they endeavor to prove that it is the interest of every man to be virtuous i shall not here enter into the reasons they allege which would divert me from my subject suffice it to say that they have convinced their fellow countrymen montaigne said long ago quote, were i not to follow the straight road for its straightness i should follow it for having found by experience that in the end it is commonly the happiest and most useful track unquote. the doctrine of interest rightly understood is not then new but amongst the americans of our time it finds universal acceptance it has become popular there you may trace it at the bottom of all their actions. You will remark it in all they say. It is as often to be met on the lips of a poor man as of the rich. In Europe, the principle of interest is much grosser than it is in America, but at the same time it is less common, and especially it is less avowed. Among us, men still constantly feign great abnegation which they no longer feel. The Americans, on the contrary, are fond of explaining almost all the actions of their lives by the principle of interest rightly understood. They show with complacency how an enlightened regard for themselves constantly prompts them to assist each other, and inclines them willingly to sacrifice a portion of their time and property to the welfare of the state. In this respect, I think they frequently fail to do themselves justice. For in the United States, as well as elsewhere, people are sometimes seen to give way to those disinterested and spontaneous impulses which are natural to man, but the Americans seldom allow that they yield to emotions of this kind. They are more anxious to do honor to their philosophy than to themselves. I might here pause, without attempting to pass a judgment on what I have described. The extreme difficulty of the subject would be my excuse, but I shall not avail myself of it, and I had rather that my readers, clearly perceiving my object, should refuse to follow me than I should leave them in suspense. The principle of interest rightly understood is not a lofty one, but it is clear and sure. It does not aim at mighty objects but it attains, without excessive exertion, all those at which it aims. As it lies within the reach of all capacities, everyone can without difficulty apprehend and retain it. By its admirable conformity to human weaknesses, it easily obtains great domination. Nor is that domination precarious, since the principle checks one personal interest by another and uses to direct the passions 
the very same instruments which excites them. The principle of interest rightly understood produces no great acts of self-sacrifice, but it suggests daily small acts of self-denial. By itself it cannot suffice to make a man virtuous, but it disciplines a number of citizens in the habits of regularity, temperance, moderation, foresight, self-command, and, if it does not lead men straight to virtue by the will, it gradually draws them in that direction by their habits. If the principle of interest rightly understood were to sway the whole moral world, extraordinary virtues would doubtless be more rare. But I think that gross depravity would then also be less common. The principle of interest rightly understood perhaps prevents some men from rising far above the level of mankind, but a great number of other men who are falling far below it are caught and restrained by it. Observe some few individuals, they are lowered by it. Survey mankind, it is raised. I am not afraid to say that the principle of interest, rightly understood, appears to me the best suited of all philosophical theories to the wants of the men of our time, and that I regard it as their chief remaining security against themselves. Towards it, therefore, the minds of the moralists of our age should turn. Even should they judge it to be incomplete, it must nevertheless be adopted as necessary. I do not think, upon the whole, that there is more egotism amongst us than in America. The only difference is that there it is enlightened, here it is not. Every American will sacrifice a portion of his private interest to preserve the rest. We would fain preserve the whole, and oft-times the whole is lost. Everybody I see about me seems bent on teaching his contemporaries, by precept and example, that what is useful is never wrong. Will nobody undertake to make them understand how what is right may be useful? No power upon the earth can prevent the increasing equality of conditions from inclining the human mind to seek out what is useful, or from leading every member of the community to be wrapped up in himself. It must therefore be expected that personal interest will become more than ever the principle if not the sole spring of men's actions. But it remains to be seen how each man will understand his personal interest. If the members of a community, as they become more equal, become more ignorant and coarse, it is difficult to foresee to what pitch of stupid excesses their egotism may lead them, and no one can foretell into what disgrace and wretchedness they would plunge themselves, lest they should have to sacrifice something of their own well-being to the prosperity of their fellow creatures. I do not think that the system of interest, as it is professed in America, is, in all of its parts, self-evident. But it contains a great number of truths so evident that men, if they are but educated, cannot fail to see them. Educate, then, at any rate. For the age of implicit self-sacrifice and instinctive virtues is already flitting far away from us, and the time is fast approaching when freedom, 
public peace, and social order itself will not be able to exist without education. End of chapter 8 End of part 15 Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville Translated by Henry Reeve Volume 2 This reading was done by Ralph Volpe